All right, hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another Antler and Feather Co. podcast, the podcast for new and adult onset hunters. My name's Vince. I'm going to be your host. And on this show, I, a newer, inexperienced hunter, bring people on who know a whole hell of a lot more about hunting than I do. And as I ask them questions and I learn new things, I just want to pass that information right along to you guys. So for starters, you're probably wondering what in the hell is on my shoulder? Well, this could be yours, guys. We have a full-sized Antler and Feather Co. Best Buck Championship championship belt. This bad boy is the main, not the best, honestly, but the main prize we are offering for the person who wins the AFCO Best Buck Championship. So you're probably wondering, this is probably expensive. How do I do this? It's absolutely free. All you've got to do is go to my Instagram page. At the top of my grid, I have a post pinned up there. That's going to tell you everything you need to do to get registered and get yourself set up to get into the contest. Do not sleep on this one, guys. You got until March 1st before we close it down. So what is in it for you? Well, besides this sweet championship belt, if you win the best buck, you're also going to win a brand new buzzard roost saddle, and you're also going to win a set of gas bowstrings from Adams Precision Archery. If you were on a youth tag, you're going to win a miniature version of this belt, um, and you're going to also win an Intimidator Grunt Call and some hats from Edible Outdoors Cook. Um, we just partnered with two new companies for this championship. Unfortunately, they came on after I had the belt made. So the belt has my logo. It's got Adam's Precision Archery logo. It's got the Buzzard Roost logo. The mini belt has Edible Outdoors Cook on it. Um, but now, if you didn't quite shoot the best buck, but you shot the second best buck, we're going to throw you a couple bags of coffee from Our Grounds Coffee Co., as well as a sweet little prize package from More Innovations. You're going to get a wall mount quiver um, that holds your arrows. You're going to get a grenade pen holder, which I have one that I use at work every day. And then you're also going to get this brand new product, the Pocket Quiver. So I use this thing every day now. I absolutely love it. It's got five spots. It's got a belt clip. It's nice and curved, so it fits in your back pocket or your front pocket, whichever way you want to do it. Um, you could put five arrows in it. You could put a couple arrows in a pen if you're shooting 3D. If you're wanting to get real wild, you might be able to fit a couple cigarettes in there too. Not that I recommend it, but you could do it. But guys, check this out. Go get signed up. You have until March 1st before the contest ends. Last call. Let's go, guys. All right, so real quick, let's do a couple friends of the show. Buzzard Roost Saddles, the most comfortable, most adjustable saddle on the market. We need to get your butt in a Buzzard Roost Saddle. Right now is a great time to do it because it's going to give you all off-season to practice with it so that when the fall comes, you can hop up in a tree, kill a booner, and be comfortable doing it. Check them out. Use code all caps AAFP10. That's going to get you 10% off your very own Buzzard Roost Saddle. Now, Our Grounds Coffee Co., the official coffee of the Antler and Feather Co. podcast. It is just damn good coffee. Ed's kicking butt over there. Um, I love his coffee. My favorite right now is uh, Roast Develt. Muley Mayhem is their dark roast, which is very good too. And Color Phase is on the way, guys, so keep an eye out for that. I want you to try the coffee. Go to their website, use code all caps AFCO, and that's going to get you 15% off your coffee order. I'm going to put this belt down for a scratch it. So I'm really excited to let you guys know we have partnered with More Innovations. They are a new friend of the show. Um, I have known Kyle for a while now, but I wanted to get his company on here as a partner because I think you guys are going to love what they have to offer. Um, they 3D print archery-related equipment. 
um, mainly for those of you who are working on your own bows at home. He's got a bunch of systems to keep all your parts, all your tools in one place so you don't lose them. And he's got a bunch of other stuff too. Like I said, like the pocket quiver. So go check out more innovations um, and use code all caps AFCO10. And that is going to get you 10% off your order at more innovations. And then finally, guys, Spartan Forge. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on Spartan Forge. You guys know everything about it by now. It is the best mapping deer movement prediction app on the market. Use code AFCO, all caps, on their website for 20% off your full subscription. So this week, we are going to tackle the subject of private land management. Now, I haven't done a show on anything like this before because I primarily hunt only public land. I don't have any land to manage. But I've had a lot of you guys reach out and say, hey, I got my own piece of land. I don't know what to do with it. Can you do a show on that? So here it is, guys. I'm really excited for our guest. He's a return guest, and he knows basically everything there is to know about hunting. So I'm really excited to run this subject by him and get his advice on it. So let's not waste any time on this one, guys. Please help me welcome back to the show, Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer TV. Dr. Woods, how are we doing today? Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me back, and I look forward to visiting today. Yeah, absolutely. I So... As I told him in the intro, we're going to be talking about kind of private land management, and this is something I have zero, zero knowledge in, Um, so I'm really excited to kind of pick your brain on that. My hopes are someday um, God finds it it fitting to to make me a steward of my own private land, so hopefully this will come into play later. Until then, this is going to help a whole lot of people out. I've had a lot of requests for a show on this subject, so I'm really excited to do that. So last time we had you on was a little while ago. I don't even know if we were into deer season yet. I think we were very early because I was asking you about stuff related to early season. So how did your mm-hmm. 22-23 season end up? You know, we had a good season. A lot of folks may or may not know. Uh, my wife and I opted to sell the northern portion of our property and keep the southern. It's real simple. Everyone thinks there's some magic foo-foo going on. But <laughs> she gets a new house. I get a new project. It was that simple. So, uh the, the property we kept smaller and is full of eastern red cedars like choke thick and Cerecia lespediza. That's an invasive species if you're not familiar. And a lot of multiflora rows and pretty yucky. We were still able to get on some deer, some bucks, and have some fun. But what really excites me is that benchmark and then watching where we go as we improve habitat from yeah. there. Yeah, that's going to be really, really fun. I assume you're going to kind of document that on growing deer as you go along. Yeah, that's not the purpose, of course, but for me, that's what drives me. You know, I love watching properties improve or helping people improve their properties and, and getting more out of creation. Creation was bountiful, and, you know, through our actions, a lot of times we didn't know any better. Maybe we've degraded that habitat, but the beauty of it is it's so resilient, we can bring it back. So yeah. uh, that really makes me happy. Yeah, I look forward to I look forward to watching along that journey. That's going to be a really fun one to watch. So this is probably going to be a pretty deep topic Um, So I'm just going to say a prayer real quick, and then we'll just hop right into the good information. All right, Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for another day. I thank you for another breath. I thank you that um, you allowed me to wake up today to step out into your creation, Mm. um, just to enjoy all of the things that you made with your very hands. Um, And I want to thank you for what you did on the cross, because had you not selflessly come down Um, sacrificed yourself in my place, took my nails, took my beating, um, took all the wrath that I deserve, 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the freedom to even worship you and thank you for these things. So Lord, I just want to thank you for that. First and foremost, um, I ask that you can use this podcast for, for whatever reasons you want, reach as many of your people as you can right now. Um, that is the main intent of this podcast and anything we learn about hunting from this point forward is just extra. So Jesus, I, I want to ask you, use this podcast as your tool. Um, I also want to thank you for Dr. Grant. Um, he's a busy, busy man. And I'm so thankful that he took some time out of his day to talk to me about a subject that I have zero, zero expertise on. Um, and again, it's, it's very fitting because he's, he's going to teach us how to take what you've created and what we've destroyed and bring some order back to it. Um, so I just ask that you'd be over this conversation. I know you are. Um, we thank you for everything and we ask all this in your great name. Amen. 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 Okay. So for starters, I, I kind of want to set a baseline, just like a, a ground zero here. Um, let's mm -hmm. say I just acquired a piece of land. Um, probably not, probably not some giant, giant deer farm, but just a nice little piece of land to hunt on. Sure. What sure. It, it, assuming it's never been hunted before, it hasn't been set up prior. What is kind of my first priority going to be? Um, to me, I'm thinking maybe I want to scout it, try to maybe see what's there, what's missing. Um, what is your number one priority when you step on a new piece of ground? Yeah. Well, you're you're exactly right, but I'll I'll take us one maybe one step before that maybe preliminary. Uh, let's see what the neighbors are up to. Drive the neighborhood, visit with them if you can. Of course, we all can use HuntStand, Google Earth, whatever, and zoom out and say, "Oh, that looks like a food plot yeah. or a pond." Or <laughs> look at all, look at all those blinds on that guy's yeah. property. You know, it's just a magic of satellites anymore. So. Um, Understand a neighborhood on any size property, whether I spoke with a gentleman day in Mississippi had a very large property, like to fit about a whole bunch of my properties on there. <laughs> and he's still worried about neighbors, right? Yeah. So deer, it seems they never center their home range in the center of a property. You know, they're on your property 80% or 20% or 15% of the time. So knowing what the neighbors are doing is really step one. Then maybe you take an inventory of your property, uh, and you can see, okay, in this neighborhood, let's say, there's not much uh, open land. It's all closed campy forest or, boy, there's soybean fields everywhere. I need some cover. You know, you can find what I like to call a limited resource. Mm. And, and I like to start at that level. Let's define the limited resource. Even before we talk about where we're putting it or anything, let's just define what's the limited resource. Because you need food, water, and cover every day. They're going to go to those every day. And if there's cover everywhere, food everywhere, adding more, my chances are pretty slim. They're going to select mine. Right. So I want to find that limited resource. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I, I had a buddy and I don't want to jump too far ahead. I, one of my buddies I was asking, cause he's kind of been, um, he's undertaken uh, management of a small, it's, it's very small, but it's exactly what you were just talking about. The property around him that basically surrounds him on all three sides uh, has been set up as a deer farm. Um, and mm -hmm. he did exactly what you said. He, you know, zoomed out and he's like, wait, those things are planted a certain way. And he kind of started zooming in and yeah, you can see the redneck blinds everywhere. You can see the ATV trails, all of that. Um, one of the questions he asked that I was going to ask later, but it kind of fits right now. If you have a situation like that, like, obviously it seems like when guys get 
their own land. They want to plant food plots. They want to put in water, uh, sure. watering holes, sure. things like that. If if you've got acres and acres and acres around you of food and great habitat, is it even worth you putting food plots on your small piece? What type of what can he do to improve his his place on that particular situation? Yeah, it certainly can be. Uh, maybe time of year, although if they're food plots, not crop fields, they're probably, you know, in hunting season or whatever. But they may not be planting summer crops so we can get deer conditioned to feeding on our place. Think Pavlov's dog mm-hmm. during the summer and then make sure we got a good fall crop. But here's the one limiting factor I didn't talk about that it takes maximum discipline. We all like playing in dirt, building a food plot, or a lot of us do, or, you know, cutting some trees, getting some bedding area. Here's the one that takes discipline. Not much effort, but discipline. You can reduce the pressure on your property more than the neighbors. You know, they've Mm -hmm. worn out four-wheeler trails to their blinds. They've done this, that, the other. And you can hunt your property very selectively. The conditions are right before you hunt there. Yeah. You know, the wind's right. Your approach is right. Doesn't mean you don't hunt, but you're very careful on the approach. And you have different approaches for, for different conditions. Because the number one uh, motivation for deer is not the rut, and it's not feeding, it's survival. And so threats uh, can really push deer nocturnal in areas, not all areas. And I remember in Georgia, I was working long ago, I used to harvest a bunch of deer at Callaway Gardens. And on one side of the gardens, we were paid to do this, we weren't poaching or anything, trying to reduce (laughs) the amount of mouths eating azaleas, to be honest. and there was an area right across the road that had pretty heavy hunting pressure on one side. And I happened to be scouting that line, just walking through there, just kind of putzing around one afternoon. And I watched deer across this little, you know, two-lane county road, middle of nowhere. And you can tell, man, they're on alert. Not just like deer approaching the road. I mean, they're on alert. Mm-hmm. They get about 30 yards in our property line. You can just physically see it. Really? It's going to go about their way because at that time there had been many deer harvested on Callaway Gardens except for, I'm sure, occasional poacher or something like that. So deer can know that. And another thing I'll go briefly on there. Years ago, my good friend, Dr. Carl Miller, University of Georgia, just retired recently, brilliant guy, uh, had, years ago had some graduate students doing some, some work on deer. I think it was Dooley County, but in that one of those big counties before they allowed baiting. And right in the middle of these kids' four-year study, two years into it, they changed the rules. And part of their study was uh, unit effort. How many hours does the average hunter spend to see and or harvest a mature deer? Is this, all this quality deer management stuff worth it, basically? Mm-hmm. And the first year they started baiting, right in the middle of the study. So they had two years <laughs> of pre, you know, pre-data, GPS collars, pretty high-end stuff. And the first year, and I don't remember the exact number, so I won't say them, but the amount of hours to harvest a deer went way down. Because okay. they're easier to harvest. Yep. But it doesn't take long for deer to associate bait with danger. And every year after that, for however long the study went on, the number of hours to harvest a deer went up. Because everyone's hunting over bait. You know, they watch right. some show in Texas, 54 bucks, walk out to a corn <laughs> pile or something. And they think, well, i got to put corn out. i got to put corn out. This is what everybody thinks. Yeah. And, and deer associate that with danger once it's been hunted much. And why it works so well in South Texas, those are often very huge ranches with extremely minimal hunting pressure. Gotcha. So the deer don't associate those areas with danger. But in South Georgia or South Carolina, those places that have baited now for many years, allowed baiting for many years, you bet deer associate those with danger. And often the thing to do is not bait 
and have some food plots you don't hunt that much or travel corridors or whatever and you'll see more daylight activity we had talked about earlier you talked about find those find those things that are missing on that property um i kind of would like to break down each one of those three that you had mentioned and maybe some solutions to that so starting with like bedding let's assume that your property just does not for whatever reason the bedding's just not suitable What types of things can you do to improve like a bedding area on your property? Yeah. Yeah. So deer make a living basically zero to four feet off the ground. So that's where cover needs to be. So if you're in a closed canopy forest again, pine or hardwoods, it's, you know, those trees were created to absorb sunshine and actually put carbon in the soil. It's all about photosynthesis. So not much sun's making it to the soil. You're not growing bedding material. So mm-hmm. we want it thick zero to four feet off the ground for deer but not dog hair thick not a clear cut where there's just a sapling every six inches that's just uncomfortable for deer they're going there but they'd rather use something else and not a solid stand of switchgrass because guys that's so thick i can barely walk through it (laughs) but more of a mosaic of really thick medium thick and not as thick all together all side by side and you're not playing this in strips so the easiest way to create bedding in most areas, again, that's forested, is hack and squirt or harvest trees or hack and squirt. Terminate some trees somehow. If they're marketable, certainly harvest. Get some resources out of that to use on your deer project. Or, or if you're in the south, you, know, you may want to hack and squirt some sweet gums or a tree that's not very marketable and let that sun down. And then if you can pair that with prescribed fire, you will create awesome bedding cover. Awesome bedding cover. But bedding cover or you know sanctuary cover is not just cover and i illustrate this when i was a boy i had beagle dogs you know thick behind our house and i'd run those beagles in there a good bit well that certainly wasn't co- it was thick right you'd cut your legs mm-hmm. on the briars walking in there but beagles in there two or three times a week doesn't make good cover so yeah. <laughs> don't just think of cover it needs to be a true sanctuary area for deer now is that something because i've also heard that you don't necessarily want the deer bedding on your property. You want them to come feed or want them to go through your property. So is bedding something that you would want, or does that kind of depend on the size of your property? Not necessarily size of property. Again, what's the limiting factor? I mean, if I can get deer bed, deer bed during daylight, right? Yeah. They spend more hours better during daylight. I want the deer on my property during daylight. Yeah. They go neighbors at dark when they're hopefully not hunting. Right. So there's some advantages, but... Each we've been incorporated 31 years as you know as, as consultants or people to help other landowners, and every property, even in the same county, is unique because the neighborhood's somewhat unique. Mm-hmm. And so, if again, if your neighbor's just loaded up with cover, big old clear cut, they cut everything around you, and it's, they didn't replant it, and it's just gnarly. Five years into it's gnarly. Then I want food. I can't compete with that. Mm-hmm. So it's what's missing in the neighborhood. I, take that one step further, my. First property my wife Trace and I purchased many years ago. We were blessed to get 13 acres from a buddy. 13 acres, man, I, I had it made, <laughs> yeah. brother. And it was pretty much a closed canopy all around me, and I developed a one-acre food plot, and we saw a lot of deer coming and going to that food plot because some of my neighbors were non-hunters. It was basically a sanctuary, right? Yeah. Even though it wasn't thick, it was a sanctuary, like a golf course or someplace you might think of like that, or, that are sanctuaries. So I didn't need to worry about cover. I needed food close to my border because there was no hunting pressure. So deer would reach me during daylight hours. Gotcha. So let's assume that the missing factor is food source. Um, 
what kind of things are, are an easy first step? Uh, obviously, if you're if you're brand new to it, you're probably you know don't have a tractor, don't have any of sure. the crazy stuff that that were sure. you know you see like the breweries out there, or you know you guys when you do your food big food plots. What's a good starting place to to get yeah. a food pot going, and like what what kind of stuff is easy to grow right off the bat? Yeah, and so that varies a little bit latitude, right, north to south, or Daniel, uh, for those that don't know, works with me, he's flying out to early tomorrow morning to go work in Texas in an area that gets about 25 inches of rain a year. Mm. You pull that baby up on satellite images, you're going, man, is there a deer in that county? <laughs> I mean, there's just not much there, you know, so uh depends on where you are, but in general, throughout much of the Whitetails range, a couple of hints, I would rather start with a a fall or you know plant during the late summer food plot because weeds are not going to be as much of a competition factor as if you start in the spring when everything's just wanting to grow like right. crazy so but you may be you know you just got your land outside you want to start this <laughs> spring you can simply clear an area if there's not trees but it's weedy you can use a weed eater or lawnmower whatever you know your kids whatever you got access to and clear that but if there's grass competition there just like mowing your yard, mowing or whatever is not going to terminate it. It's going to grow back. So you're probably going to have to use a herbicide. I'm not anti-herbicide. I kind of look at herbicide almost like a root canal. Gosh, I don't want to get one. <laughs> but if I need one to keep from hurting the rest of the teeth, I want to be able to eat some venison. Right. Then I'll get one. Well, I don't just go, boy, I get to use herbicide today. Yeah. But it's just a tool, and if I need to use it, I'll follow the labeled instructions and use it. So if you've got a lot of grass in an area that you're going to make a food plot, you're probably going to need a treatment of herbicide. And here's another hint. Don't, some people mow it that are new to this. They mow it first, then use herbicide. Well, everyone's going to use glyphosate, and that works on leaf surface area. If it's just hitting a stem, not much is penetrating, so you don't mm. want to mow it. Do it full. And then my favorite thing, if you mow it right then, you're going to put all this duff on the ground. You're probably broadcasting. I broadcast a lot of seed. It's hard for those seeds to, I talk with my hands if you can't tell, <laughs> get get through all that grass. So I'll treat it with a herbicide, get to the timber's edge, use a backpack blower, and just remove all the leaves and the timber around there. That's my fire break. And then you just use a really easy, gentle, prescribed fire. Make sure you have fire break, you know, because Solomon wrote, couple things that are never satisfied and one of them is fire it's going to burn until it's out of fuel or it gets too wet yeah there's no viable fuel it's going to keep going your neighbors you know wherever it's just going until it's out of fuel so but safely use prescribed fire that does a couple things that instantly releases all the nutrients that are in those weeds if you will or grasses or forbs you didn't want growing there and right there in the top soil only thing that's going to volatilize is nitrogen so you're not worried about that and then you got a good seed bank and then a real important step is whatever you're planting, we'll talk about that in a second. Don't just go broadcast when you're done. I mean, the ground's hot, it's black, sun may be shining. You're going to roast those seeds, man. Mm -hmm. You're going you're to be feeding the squirrels roasted peas <laughs> or something. So wait as close as you can to right for a pretty good rain is forecast. It's much better to broadcast before rain because those raindrops will help get the seed in contact with the soil or maybe even splash a little dirt up on it. Versus right after, you've got more soil, but the seed's not getting pushed into the soil. Right. And what to plant, let's start at the very elementary level. If you're starting in the spring or even early summer, buckwheat is a real simple crop that will grow in your pickup. Literally, if there's moisture in your bed, <laughs> it will grow. It's not overly expensive. 
and deer like it. Now buckwheat isn't overly nutritious. It's not bad. It's not good. It's kind of middle there, you know, Cheerios or something. Um, it, it, but it grows. I prefer blends. So if the conditions just aren't right for a buckwheat, but you've got buckwheat and some soybeans and some sun hemp or a good blend, whatever it is, then something's probably going to work unless it's a total drought. Mm -hmm. And 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 blends. It's, you tell me if I'm getting too deep here, but no, God no. created plants to work together, literally. And I'll keep this pretty shallow, so to speak, but <clears throat> pardon me. Every different species of plants releases carbonic acid. They photosynthesize C6, carbon, H12, O6, right? And they release that out of roots in trade for bacteria to bring them microbes. This is God's beautiful plan. I often reflect on the prairie. 60 million bison or buffalo for dummies like me <laughs> is what's estimated. No one was fertilizing lime and herbicide and planting, right? Yeah. So we know God's plan works. Right. We know it works in everything, life, food plots, whatever. We know it works. So I, I would like to plant a blend. One of them, at least one would be a legume. Think of a clover, maybe an alfalfa. Sun hemp grows about anywhere. It's I love sun hemp, man. It's it's grant proof. It'll grow. You just put it out there, it'll grow. <laughs> and then if it's a small plot, a little hideo plot or something, deer are probably going to hammer it pretty good. So you want to plant pretty thick. You don't want to... You maybe want to plant more that's once on the bag because that's the thing about that crop going to maturity and having plenty of room. Yeah. They're not talking about, they're talking about harvesting with a John Deere. We're talking about harvesting with a 10 pointer. Right. And our 10 pointer doesn't wait till it's ripe. So, you know, it gets that tall, <laughs> yep. especially in closed canopy forest or nipping on it. So you got a lot of plants to fill the gap up. And in fall, the same thing. Fall's easier. And you can get away with the blend in the fall. If your land's really rough, boy, you'll just, you know, you're thinking, boy, this is a moonscape out here. One of my favorite crops is cereal rye. It, again, it'll grow in the back of your pickup. Give it some moisture, it'll grow. I grow up little plates around my house, drives my wife nuts. I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing the germination rate and stuff like that. Yeah. Just, I put a, a paper towel down, put some warm, moist water on there, throw some seed on there, and it'll grow. I mean, it, it'll get all fuzzy like a chia plant or something. <laughs> um, cereal rye. And a good clover, crimson clover, something like that. It's not real expensive. Maybe a few turnips. Don't plant too many turnips. Think about the equivalent of two or three pounds per acre because turnips have such big leaves, they may shade out everything else. Gotcha. And those are, you know, ground zero starting blends that are easy to do. If you want more sophisticated, get a better blend. And, and each year you maintain that food plot, the soil will get better and better because that plant material is going to decay right there. Gotcha. So I'm kind of re resorting back to my buddy's property. Um, he had done food plots and things like kind of similar to what you were talking about. And he had thrown the idea around of planting like corn or beans. Um, but his area that he was going to do that is not, I mean, it's not even a full acre. Um, is sure. it, is it worth doing that at that point with that small land or do you kind of, I guess when you're looking at going the route of like corn or soybeans, is that more of just like a, we're farming this land and they're going to eat some of it? Is that something that you would plant strictly for deer? Well, if you're in a real low deer density, soybeans might work. Uh, they're a great crop. Deer love them. You know, I'm not anti-soybean. Before we sold our property, we had almost 90 acres of food plots. And if I planted all 90 acres in soybeans, they'd get lip high. Yeah. They'd never make it over lip high. And that was an expensive process to learn from, right? Because yeah. I'm hard-headed. I had to do it like three times in a <laughs> row. Like, oh, this ain't working. Right. 
my wife's like, are you buying more seed? <laughs> um, so on a small food plot, I would think you might want to have soybeans as part of blend because they come up and they're going to be tractored there early. Yeah. But they're going to wipe them out. Unless they've never seen a soybean before, I promise you they're going to wipe them out. That's a limiting factor soybeans. If I could take a little side here, this is what I call a magic bean. No, no play on soybeans. So we all want something that's really cheap, right? And just grows like crazy. But deer love it. They can't eat enough of it. They stand there all day. That's really drought resistant, but it's cold hardy. And, you know, it does everything. There, there is no plant. That's where blends come in. We can take, you know, <clears throat> a tenth of our blend that's really cold hardy if you're planting in the fall. And a tenth of our blend that's really drought hardy. And a tenth of our blend that like maybe like soybeans even in the fall that's real attractive early on. We can create the magic bean through blends by, by putting together different species that have the characteristics we would want the perfect plant to have. Gotcha. So now moving, moving to water, if water is a limiting factor around where you're at, um, you see a lot of guys will put like kids bait, you know, baby pools in there, or they'll dig a thing out and clay line it or is, is all, is that worth it? Is water something that put, cause it seems like it'd be a lot of work cause you have to go fill it. You have to, you know, try to get in there with a lot of water, you know, without stinking the place up real bad. Is that something that you should even really worry about? Is it worth the time and effort? So there are folks that have great success doing that. About everywhere I work, you know, short of Texas, New Mexico, somewhere like that. Uh, I mean, there's a farm pond. If you, again, pull up a mapping app, there's a farm pond every quarter mile or a creek or, you know, there's, it's rare. East of the Rockies, it's very rare for a deer to have to walk very far to get water. Now, in a drought year, it could be awesome. It could be awesome. And it may be that you just, you know, this water is right outside the bedding area. It's the first place they're stopping. So water in general, no, nah, I'm going to put my time and effort into something better. Water where it's really limited or really strategically placed. Okay. It could be a good tool. It's, it's, it's a tool. Yeah. That's all it is. It's not a magic bullet. Yeah. And I had a listener uh, was curious. He he has more sandy soil. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything special or different that you should do in that scenario? If you've got real sandy soil, maybe it's hard to hard to grow on. What can you do to improve yeah. that? Yeah, so it's going to be low in nutrients, and nutrients are going to leach through it quickly. So if you fertilize, for using fertilizer, you don't want to put it down a month ahead, right? Because it's halfway to China <laughs> where your plants germinate. Yeah. You just don't want to do that, you know. Uh, so... I like to never disc or turn over uh, sandy soil because when you disc, of course, you're exposed to the air and it's going to dry out even faster. Yep. So I know you don't have a no-till drill, but again, you could use prescribed fire. If it didn't grow very well, there's not a lot of biomass, you could just mow it and herbicide or herbicide and mow. But do anything you can to avoid disking or disturbing sand. And if you do that three or four or five you know, rotations in a row, you build up a layer of black organic matter. And I've seen tremendous success stories where people have six inches of our black organic matter on top of sand. You can stick a shovel in there and dig through it, and it's amazing. But you can't disc, not even one time, or you you're lose all your work. Gotcha. So kind of moving away from the food, uh, one question that I did have, too, is the, the, the subject of doe factories. So maybe the land you have is covered in deer, but all you see is doe all the time do does that actually is that a bad thing does that push mature deer away um and what can you do about that 
So some folks that, you know, certainly say that, maybe they've observed it. I don't know. I haven't. And I have physically put GPS collars on deer, and a lot of my buddies are still in the university system do, and we're not seeing that. So certainly, except for the breeding season, bucks, especially mature bucks and does, they, they kind of live separate, right? But that separation may be 50 yards or 100 yards across a, a bedding area. It's mm -hmm. not like, well, I'm going over here three miles because there's a bunch of those pesky does over there. Yeah. I've, I've never seen that on any gps study and during the rut those populations come together so i would be more concerned about having a quote-unquote doe factory if they're eating me out of house and home i can't grow enough groceries I, they're eating my bedding cover they're so hungry they're, the plants i didn't think were palatable <laughs> that i wanted to be bedding cover are now you know buzzed off yeah. so i would be more worried about balancing that adult sex ratio for other reasons besides boiter keeping all the bucks away. If you are someone who wants to kind of thin out your doe herd for whatever reason, one thing I was curious about, I've heard guys say you, you want to do it early, early on in the season. I've also heard guys say wait till after the rut because the more does around, the more chance bucks are going to come through. What would you recommend for guys? When's the best time to harvest does yeah. during the season? Or is, to you, is that not even a factor? Uh, decades, decades old debate, but there's really clear science behind this. So let's just take a couple of things uh, and then we'll give you a definitive answer. But if you're going to harvest, I'm just being totally facetious. You got a hundred acres, you're going to take 10 does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just easy math. Um, those 10 does, deer eat about 5%, give or take of their body weight a day. So you're, you're in a state that's October, November, December, deer season, three months, a quarter of the year. They eat two to 5,000 pounds a year, dry weight based on the size of the deer. And so you could lose 500 pounds a piece for those 10 deer or 5,000 pounds of deer food if you harvest them December 31st versus October 1st. So from just a food, because food's almost always a limiting factor unless you're in ag country, mm -hmm. almost always. And it's a limiting factor in ag country post crop harvest. You know, you see these pictures of giant bear fields. There's enough for deer to eat out there, yeah. a little bit of spilled grain. So from that point of view, I'd rather take them earlier than late. Addressing the rut, uh, gosh, I hope that tail dies someday. Because <laughs> study after study after study after study with GPS collars, not, you know, me as a grad student out there looking around, think I know what's going on. Right. GPS collars, unbiased, unbiased. Bucks are not leaving their home range, they have tremendous fidelity to their home range, unless, you know, their home range... Kind of circles, Bay Lou's home range 10%, and Bay Lou gets some special perfume, and then they go over there 24 to 36 hours, and then they, you know, they do a little of this. You can see the pattern on GPS data easy, and then the date's over, and no matter where they are, if your head is to core that buck's home range, he makes a straight line to it. Gotcha. So they're not, you know, that that's thinking like a human. Oh man, I got a call. And they're having a prom over here at Billings. I'm going to go cruise the square at Billings, a little town down the road here. They, deer don't have that cell phone. Yeah. They don't know that they're having, you know, beef and ribs at Applebee's. <laughs> they don't know any of that. So, no, they have tremendous fidelity to their home range. Because remember, the number one motivation for a deer is survival. Outside their home range, they don't know where the coyote dens are, the hunting stands are, you know, whatever threats they yeah. have in that area. They don't know that. So there's tremendous fidelity for especially a mature buck. Now, deer disperse. Does disperse, young does disperse, typically 
as a six-month-old or a year-and-a-half-old. Those are the two big humps in dispersal. Mm -hmm. Those tend to disperse further than bucks on average. They, they kick them out, but more bucks will disperse. Those tend to stay in their matriarchal group. Uh, again, God's plan, you know, a lot of people worry about inbreeding in a natural system. It's just never, ever, ever, ever shown to be any type of issue. Never, ever. And that's because at six months or a year and a half of age, that doe's biting, kicking, stomping, whatever, you will leave here. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're saying, you know, this is an inbreeding problem, son. You got to get out here. It's just how <laughs> God created them, and those yearling bucks are going to disperse. Yeah. So kind of speaking on that, uh, we also had another another listener had a question kind of, uh, not gene, uh, yeah, genetically related, I suppose. Mm-hmm. He was kind of curious, so I'm going to read the question just so I don't butcher it, but why does it seem like some farms have better genetics than others? Um, even when a when a doe pushes her fawns miles onto other properties, um, kind of like you're saying, dispersing, um, and those genetics spread, certain farms seem to always have the same big genetics. They keep pumping out big deer year after year after year. Um, wh- what is the reason for that? Is it that that particular area has better nutrient, uh, it's more mineral dense. What, what, in your opinion, causes that to happen? I'm going to rabbit trail you again, reflect just a moment. I'll keep it real short. But years ago, I don't know, three decades ago or so, I was just out of grad school or still in grad school in Texas A&M. I was going to a conference on white-tailed deer genetics. It was so long ago, I thought to go to a meeting, I had to wear a sport coat and a tie all <laughs> the time. So glad I got out of that nonsense. Right. But anyway. So I fly down there, and Dr. Brown was the department head of wildlife at Texas A&M. You know, pretty powerful stuff at that time. And I'm setting up in the cheap seats, and they introduced Dr. Brown. He's the plenary or the big poo daddy speaker of that conference. And this is so long ago, he had slide carousels. So he's fussing around with his slides. <laughs> like, I got the legal pad out, and I'm like, just on the edge of my chair, you yeah. know. And he's, in hindsight, and I know Dr. Brown, I think he was kind of staging this up a little bit, you know, but finally gets ready and ladies and gentlemen you know blah 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 whips us first slide the most important thing in white-tailed deer genetics is nutrition i'm thinking well yeah you know deer's got a certain level of nutrition to express their potential whatever he kind of fusses with his paperwork whatever and the second most important thing that impacts the white-tailed deer genetics i'm like here we go buddy this is it you know and he flips the slide nutrition and you know you know a third thing was nutrition and I have found that. And so I'll relate to Georgia and Missouri. In Missouri, I live down here in the Ozark Mountains. No one comes here trying to kill big deer, right? Yeah. I mean, they go to Branson, <laughs> ride the water slides, whatever. They don't go come here to kill big right. deer. And all the deer in northern Missouri, almost all the deer in northern Missouri, were restocked from a local public land not 20 minutes from my house right here. And another an hour this way and an hour, an hour and a half that way or so. Little mountain deer got up there and all kind of good food. And all of a sudden their genetics changed. Well, of course their genes didn't change. Right. Or in Georgia, uh, right when I was in grad school a little bit before I went to UGA, part of the time, um, all the big deer, all the record book deer come out of Piedmont of Georgia. You, you can look this up in the Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young mm-hmm. record books. And that area was all soybeans. And then the government came in and started the pine plantation program because soybean prices were really low. So they paid farmers $100 an acre for 13 years to plant pines to help soybean farmers out. And that's why that whole belt from Virginia to East Texas is pine trees still to the day. Uh, and all of a sudden, all the big bucks after the pine trees got up and shaded out all the land started coming from coastal or, you know, lower plain Georgia where they irrigate crops. Mm. The genes didn't change, the nutrition changed. So it's a nutrition thing, folks. It's not a genetic thing. It is not. We grow 
pretty good deer here at the Proving Grounds. Uh, not boasting at all, blessed to grow and harvest really nice deer. But before we bought this place, the record in both Pope and Young or Boone and Crockett for two counties, my property happens to be split by county line, the counties are big in Missouri, was a 131 inch deer. Mm. We grow deer significantly larger than that now because we've really worked to improve the native habitat and our food plots. Yeah. So if you, what kind of things can you do to improve that then? I mean, because I mean, you're talking, obviously you can put in food plots, but what kind of things can you do to just make the actual habitat more nutritious? Is that where you, I mean, we can go down the line of supplements and stuff too and minerals um, and when that might be helpful or not, but how can you just do it yeah. uh, kind of organically? Yeah. Uh, so again, if you're this, usually this question usually comes from closed canopy areas. No one's worried about making deer bigger in Iowa, right? right. They say, I get, this guy get older. So it's almost always closed canopy forest around that area. So you have to thin trees and allow sun to get down to the forest floor. And then you have to use fire or you should use fire on it. You know, everyone wants a magic number, but two, three, four year rotation and, and this is a big and capital A and some of that fire needs to be a growing season fire, July, August, September. Because if you burn every three years dormant season before spring green up, that's going to become a grass dominated area. If you think about grass, you outside right now, there's still some grass holding a seed head, mm-hmm. right? All the forbs have dropped their seed, but grass still has some seeds on top and you burn that area, you know, in the late winter. Well, it's a perfect seed bed for that grass seed and that's what you're going to get. When you burn, you know, late growing season, again, wherever you are, July, August, September, a lot of broadleaf, partridge pea, ragweed, ragweed's a high quality deer feed, very high quality, about the same as alfalfa, mm. uh, young ragweed. It's going to drop their seeds when you burn in and you're switched from predominantly grass, you're still grass, but predominantly grass, predominantly forage. So in timber country, thinning trees to about 60 basal feet per acre. If your mission's deer, not timber, and 60 basal feet simply means if we had 60 trees on an acre of land, they're all a foot diameter. Mm-hmm. That would be 60 basal. Okay. Or 30 trees that are two feet diameter, that'd be 60 basal. Okay. And the magic to that is either, you know, 60 or 30 or whatever, fewer trees have bigger crown, you're still letting X amount of sunshine down. And it takes sunshine to grow groceries. You cannot grow deer food in a closed campy forest. You may get an acorn drop once a year. And they're really low in protein, pretty high in carbohydrates. And we take protein to grow fawns and antlers. So we got to get sundown and forbs, broadleaf plants, forbs to grow big antlers. So one thing that you, you've brought up numerous times that I'm sure by now, I know I'm like, okay, I got to ask this. The importance of having um, burns. How, if you're brand new to it or and you've never done it, how do you start with that? Um, I, I assume it's not best practice to just run out there with a can of gasoline and a, a you know book of matches. Where What kind of things do you have to be aware of if you're going to uh, undertake that? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And first off, those, there's laws that kind of vary state by state. Now, we're in still Missouri, land of the free, home of the brave. Mm-hmm. You can burn anytime you want. I call, again, my county split by two properties, both dispatch, law enforcement dispatches, both properties of courtesy, both counties as a courtesy say, hey, we're burning days, going to be some smoke, you probably get some calls, but it's okay unless I call you and tell you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Some states you have to apply for a permit. It's a simple process. Almost every state now, even Pennsylvania, they're really slow to the game, offers prescribed fire training. Mm-hmm. 
Most of them are free. Some of them like $15, you know, pay for lunch or whatever. So I suggest if you're new, the first thing to do is go to a training class or go with some of your buddies who also own land and are doing prescribed fire and get some hands-on experience. See it, smell it, uh, be part of it. And then a real exciting thing that's happening all across America is what's called prescribed fire associations. Uh, and these are just neighbors that maybe don't have a lot of experience and they get together and pool their resources and because you're going to burn once or twice a year. So 10 guys get together and buy three drip torches and two backpack blowers and hey, I'm going to burn this Saturday. Can I use them? And can you help me? Because I'll help you on your land. Mm -hmm. And it's a true co-op. No one's making any money. It's a true cooperative effort where you're sharing labor and tools and experience. And the people that started this are not making any money. They're losing money. They did it just to help people improve wildlife habitat throughout the Whitetails Range. It's a great program. Yeah. I would check that out. Prescribed Fire Burn Associations. I would Google that, and maybe it fits in your area. Now, how long does a how long does that typically take? Um, for let's just say, I mean, how big of an area are you burning at a time? I mean, is it like a a week long thing? We got to take vacation no, from no, work, or no, 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 no. Uh, we, we we commonly burn fifty acres or more in a day with three or four of us. Oh, okay. So for the guy that's got ten or twenty acres, you know, he's probably by himself going to use a backpack, he or she, a backpack blower, a hand rake, or whatever, mm -hmm. depending on what's there, and create a fire break. Fire break simply where there's no fuel, and you know, six seven feet wide, depending on how tall the fuel is, whatever. And then, hey, I'm going to burn this Saturday. I'll buy everybody lunch. Around here, we do this a lot. Hey, I'll, I'll meet you at Waffle House or I'll meet you at whatever the local breakfast place is. And if you show up, I'll buy you breakfast. We go burn and I'll cook some venison afterwards. That's, you know, no money's changing hands, just buddies helping buddies. Right, right. And that's a big thing I'm seeing grow across America, which is an ideal thing, right? You're, you're getting cooperation. You're building friendship. Food's always a thing that brings us together. There's a lot of good to that. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I've noticed with friends that don't have big, you know, big big land, and I don't know too many people that take on, you know, having controlled burns. I think it's simply because it seems very intimidating, but I mean, it sounds like from what you've said, it's extremely beneficial for for the habitat and for just everything. If you're if you're gonna dive into making a deer property, seems like it's something you really should be doing. So I, I would like to stop and make this point right now because this, this bothers me a little bit. So when we ride through America, and I, I don't care what state, anywhere except Alaska, you're not seeing what Daniel Boone saw or whoever the early explorer was in your area. And if you are not a reader, shame on you, but if you're not a reader, uh, go to YouTube and just search on Daniel Boone's biography. It's only about an hour long. And Daniel was an awesome writer. You know, he was, he was an awesome writer. He couldn't spell like me, but he's an awesome <laughs> writer. And his observations of when he crossed over and got into what he called Kentucky. You know, there's a tree every 60, 80 yards. There was grass everywhere in Kentucky. Buffalo, elk everywhere. The game were not in closed camping forests. And then here where I live, a guy named Schoolcroft was one of the first trappers, explorers that was little enough to keep a journal, just like Lewis and Clark. He made little notes every day. And he talked so much about fire because the Native Americans knew that, boy, I burn this off. It's going to be fresh, quote unquote, grass next mm. year. And the buffalo are going to come or the elk are going to come or it really reduces ticks. The number one way to control ticks is using, you know, prescribed fire over and over and over to appropriate intervals. Because all animals, deer populations build up and we have better habitat. 
horrible habitat populations go down. Thick leaf litter, closed canopy forest that holds in humidity is ideal tick habitat. Mm -hmm. Those populations blow way up. Burn, take that leaf, leaf, litter, leaf litter away, open up that canopy where some sun's getting down because ticks have to have their exoskeleton moist. Mm. You desiccate it, they're dying. So we can make better habitat for deer and, and way worse habitat for ticks. Now, who doesn't want that right, recipe? Right. <laughs> so if we're if we're doing all that, what what place do like minerals and supplements have? Um, it seems like if you just do everything right and, and you're, you know, patient with it, you should be able to just kind of, like I said, organically make your habitat better without having to use, you know, supplements and all that. But what place do those have on your deer property? You're going to get a lot of hate mail. Oh, I've, hey, I've already had that. <laughs> so if you have really diverse good habitat, you, you, you know, you've felled some trees if you need to, or you've done subscribed fire, whatever it is, deer will eat the plant they need to get the minerals they want, period. Period. Whitetail are not migratory. And we're like the buffalo that Daniel Boone and others wrote about going on these big traces. That's where the word trace comes from. So these big traces mm -hmm. go to mineral licks in the spring, always in the spring, because that's when the grass flushes and greens up and there's a lot of moisture in there. And it takes salt to get that moisture out of their system, right? That mm. salt relationship with the kidney. Whitetail deer weren't moving 100 miles to that big natural salt lick. There's other little smaller natural salt licks around, but they will eat plants that are naturally high in salt or magnesium or boron or molybdenum or whatever, They will, if those plants are available. If you're in a monoculture, fescue pasture, or soybean field, you might be able to justify putting some minerals out, but there's been two major studies, one at, at Louisiana, uh, and I can't think of the other big college that it was at. And both of them found no relationship with adding minerals and increasing antler size. Mm. Zero. So I'm in a, I used to put trophy rock out all over my place. Yeah. I've lived this life. And now I'm in a CWD zone and that's banned. Yeah. And I'm growing better deer now than I ever have. And I haven't eaten minerals out in many years. Yeah. No supplemental feed. Supplemental feed is what I call, and others call to rain in a bag. So you didn't grow, you didn't rain enough for you to grow native vegetation or a food plot or whatever. So you pay someone else to grow it, harvest it, process it, sell it to a middleman. He puts a, a shiny bag and a deer on the front of the bag, and he sells it to Stuff Mart, and then you pay way too much for it. Yeah. So native vegetation managed properly with some food plots will grow all the deer you want. Yeah. So really. Really, if you're doing everything that we've been talking about, it's not it's not even something that should be on your radar at all. Save yourself so, some money. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you feed deer, urinate, salivate, and defecate in the same relatively small area, if you're using a tube feeder, those are horrible, or a spin cast feed or whatever. And if, you know, I have kids. If your kid goes to preschool or whatever, and little Sarah's got a snotty nose, and she's playing fire truck, and then Johnny plays fire truck, he's probably going to have a snotty nose too. Yep. Same thing with deer. And everyone talks about CWD, but there's lungworm, liverworm, stomachworm, deer mange, mites, ticks, all these other things. So, and, and people say, well, cattle guys do it. Well, cow guys vaccinate their cattle. Wild free-ranging mm. deer, it's, it's illegal to vaccinate them because what if you vaccinate it with a horrible chemical and Fred down the road kills it and eats it, feeds it to his kids? That would be horrible. Yeah. So deer are not vaccinated. They can't take sticking their nose in a four-inch circle where someone else just salivated time and time and time again. Sooner or later, someone's going to have a lungworm or something, and 
you know, just passing it on. Right, right. So moving on to a couple more of just the random questions some people were curious about. Um, how can you create lanes? Like if you've got a food plot um, that you want them to go to, how can you go about creating lanes or trails and then getting those deers to act deers, getting those deer to actually hop on and start using those, um, to get into your food plot. So you can kind of manage their movement a little bit better. So yes and no. I mean, you can mowing the lane through thick covers. Great deer. Well, unless they associate with danger, you hunt it too much or whatever, they're going to take the path of least resistance. Um, but if they pre- if you pressure it much at all, you get busted. Deer have memory. You get busted, they're taking an alternate route for a week or two or whatever. So be careful doing that. Um, a better recipe, I think, is create really thick cover, good quality bedding cover, zero to four feet tall. And put your food plot, you know, depending on where you are, but 75 yards away. So they get there before dark. It's not that people can't find sign or figure out where deer are walking. They just figure out usually where they're walking at night. Mm-hmm. Or they hunt it so much or they force them to use it at night or they encourage them to use it at night. So something that's really become a big thing what I do last several, several years is develop my food sources very close to cover. And not just do that. When I'm laying this whole thing out, again, each property takes a unique plan to really maximize its potential. Uh, I'm thinking, how can I approach under different wind directions to get there? Yeah. Because it does no good to go through all this work. you got five acres of cover and a food plot and a tree stand or a blind. Man, you're you're right. And walking into it, your sense just sweeping over the whole right. bedding area. <laughs> so you need to think about what resources need. They're going to eat a minimum twice a day. And they're going to they're gonna seek cover. So you can get those really close. And you've, you've really shrunk the need for a deer to go further, right? Yeah. Now you gotta be able to approach that area without alerting them. Yeah, and that was another thing someone was someone was asking is how do you decide where's the optimal place to put like to hang your stand or your blind in relation to that food plot? Um, they were kind of curious. Is it? I guess I guess you kind of answered the right way to do it. Put that food plot within you know x amount from their bedding and your cover. But they were kind of saying, should I should I set my stand up on their travel corridor too? the food plot or is it better to be on the food plot and if you are on the food plot how close should you be to it where's the best place to put a stand obviously taking wind into consideration things like that but how far away should you be i mean if i've got a food plot really close to cover i'll probably hunt the food plot because if i get closer on that travel zone i'm getting really close to cover Mm -hmm. so i'm probably hunting the food plot and I and now I have a destination. They may have five ways to get to the food plot, but they're going to the food plot mm-hmm. or the oak tree you're hunting or whatever it is. And I typically have now. I love the freedom of being in a tree stand, but I also love being in my redneck blind, my window shut because there's some scent leaking, but not much. Mm-hmm. I have got a way with murder. Yeah, sitting in a blind with the windows down. Now you may have your pants rolled up because you're sweating in there in the warm season. <laughs> Uh, it's ugly. Don't film down below my knees, right. boys. I'll bind everyone. But uh, you can get away with so much more. And it hides movement, all those things. There's a lot of advantages. If you're in a tree stand, I like to have it one layer back. So the tree in front of me is kind of blocking some movement. Or I don't want to be bald right after on the front. Right. You know, because you're fussing around. You're, the two biggest camo things you need, I like camo. I wear camo. But your face and your hands move more. You and I are facing hands that move more, but our chest hadn't already moved at all. Right. Same thing in a hunting stand. So you want to make sure you got 
face paint or mask or whatever, and your hands are dulled up somehow. Yeah. Um, and I like to be one tree back. I like multiple, even on a little hidey hole food plot. In uh, most places in America, I want one of them on a northeast corner because there's rarely a northeast wind. You can find wind patterns on various things online. And, you know, a lot of west and north, we all think that's go front cool, you know. Mm-hmm. But it tends to go around that northeast really quickly, and then we're in another front, and that southeast or south just is pushing in. So mm-hmm. northeast is a good bet, but I like to have them on opposite corners. So no matter what the wind is, I go... I've cleared this area, you know, I've, I've put a lot of sweat equity in it. I got deer coming to it, got my trail camera over there. And I get off Saturday from work and the wind's wrong. Mm-hmm. So I would rather invest in it, whatever you hunt out of, blind stands, whatever you hunt out of, and have two of them there than have four food plots. Because that way I've got one set up really right and I can hunt it almost any wind direction. Yeah. And you had brought up trail cams. How, do, how can you best utilize those? Should you be setting those in one place all year and keeping track of it? Or do you move your trail cams depending on the season? Like what's the best way to utilize that technology on your property? Yeah. So I love trail cameras. I'm a trail camera fan. I've got a bunch of cell cameras out there. Cell cameras change the game because you're not going in and out all the time. Mm-hmm. So you can put them closer to your hunting area because you don't have to go there all the time. Uh, let's break deer season down, no matter where you are, into pre, pre-rut. Mm-hmm pre-rut, rut, and post-rut. Because it's kind of a different strategy for each one. So pre-pre-rut, it's all food cover, food cover, food cover. And then pre-rut, you're thinking scrapes. That's the time your scrapes are used the most. And you may not hunt or scrape, but you're seeing where they're going, where they're coming, whatever. And I often don't hunt right where my camera is. I've got cameras on scrapes, and it's 80% or 90% nocturnal. But they're going this way. They came from this way. Okay, i got to back up 200 yards to get closer to a bedding area. I think the thing that's missed the most, people have, maybe some people have tunnel vision of, I'll put my camera where I want to kill the deer. No, camera is an information gathering tool. And you don't just see buck or doe, you see they're they're here at 3 a.m. Where are they going to be at 6 a.m. or 7 Mm -hmm. a.m.? And do I move cameras? Yes, but cautiously, just because during season, I don't want to alert deer. So I'm thinking pre-rut food cover, pre-pre-rut, Pre-rut, travel corridor, scrapes, rut. I don't worry much about cameras just to see who's still alive because there's not yeah. a good pattern during the rut. Post-rut, I'm usually on food. And if you're in an area that has pretty decent habitat, this is one of the best-kept secrets in all deer hunting because no one likes to hunt when it's cold here in the Midwest. But <laughs> uh, if you have healthy enough habitat for your fawns to reach 60, 70 pounds, they're going to reach puberty December, January, February, when they get that weight. Puberty is kind of a weight thing for female fawns. And they haven't been to the dance before, so they're still in that same pattern. Food, just like a fawn. Yeah. Food cover, food cover, food cover. Where an adult doe usually goes off to a thicket, she'll kick her fawns off and go to a thicket during the rut, right? So that female fawn says food cover, food cover. And I'm hunting food because bucks are trying to recover from the rut, and that's where the female fawns are. And that is a very successful technique for me. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good one. I'm kind of curious, and this is kind of off the topic, <clears throat> but it's been a hot topic lately. Um, you being, you having, you know, the scientific background that you have, um, you've been in the game many, many, many years. You've seen everything technology-wise. Do you have any concerns with, like, camera technology? Because the recent thing has been, like, live feed cell cams, um, 
things like that. Now you obviously you use, you utilize trail cams, you like them. Um, I'm just curious of your opinion on, do you think that there's a limit to the technology we should be using in the woods to where it starts to cross a line? Um, I'm just curious of yours, just because of your background, because you're very data oriented. So I would assume a camera to you is like, that's a tool. Yes, of course, let's use it. But does it concern you at all of where it could go? Yeah, I'm not going to, I don't know what new technology is going to come out next year. At this stage, I'm not concerned. And I've, I am old, unfortunately, and I've lived through <laughs> this. So, I, you know, everyone carried around a bear Kodiak bow when I was a kid yep. or a homemade bow. Or I had a homemade bow or whatever. And Alan, who's the guy that first came out with the compound bow, was down the road seven miles from our farm. And my dad laughed. You do what your dad does. So I laughed. Who's going to carry that two before round with wheels on it, man? I remember those comments <laughs> clearly. And now those of us that I, I, I shoot for prime, but I got, if you turn this around, I got trad bows all over my wall here. Cause when I was a kid, I kept them, you know, yeah. and it was a necessity then. Now it's cool. If you can, you know, launch an arrow with a trad bow right. somewhat accurate at 10 yards or something. Um, and then crossbows are going to wipe out the deer herd. They're going to wipe it out. Last year we harvested a little bit over 5 million deer throughout the continental 48 States. And we didn't wipe out the deer herd. Yeah. And there are way more vertical bows. No one will say crossbow anymore. Vertical bows, vertical bow being this way, than horizontal bows. Mm-hmm. It's a crossbow. I'm not anti-crossbow. My dad used crossbow. My daughter comes from college sometimes, practice crossbow. And we're not wiping out the deer herd. Cell cam has been a long time now. We're not killing any more big bucks than we used to. We are because people are passing them up. But they're not patterning them because you still got to get in there. You still have the discipline not to alert them before you go hunting. You still have to hunt. Yeah. When we get to something where we don't have to hunt, we're totally reliant on technology, then I'll be concerned. Yeah. We haven't got there yet. I, I have cell cameras over my property, and I'll tell you this, uh, and I'm in the Ozark Mountains, Hill Country. I can go out to Kansas, western Kansas, where it's all cropland, a little CRP, and a tree, creek bottom. And I look like a hero in western Kansas, man. I look like <laughs> I know how to hunt. On my own property, which is hills and haulers and mainly timber, I may not feel a tag some years. Yeah. On my own land. So I'm not as worried about technology is, you know, improving the habitat or captive deer and small facilities. To me, that's, I'm not opening up that can of worms, but that's not ethical to me. That's not something I want to do. Right, right. Yeah, I was, <clears throat> it's just, it's been real. I For some reason, it seems like cell cameras were like pretty, pretty well accepted. I mean, I don't have a problem with trail cams at all. I just don't run them because on public land, they're going to get stolen. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the one time I did run one, it was exciting to, you know, I, it was a SD card one, but it was exciting to pull that card and be like, holy crap, there are deer. Yeah. So, you know, like on last week's show, we had talked kind of on this subject as well. So I think there's trade-offs. Let's take this over. There's trade-offs to all technology. Nuclear bombs are horrific. No one's going to argue that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, nuclear power is really cheap when used properly and pollution-free. Yeah. Nuclear medicine saves a lot of lives. Which one are we talking about when we say nuclear is bad? Right. Uh, so it, trail cameras have taught people to pass up bucks because they see, oh, they get older, they get bigger. We preached that for decades, but it's when trail cameras really started rolling that people realized 
those pointy head biologists, they're telling the truth. If they get older, <laughs> they get bigger. Yeah. Uh, and you see there's not black panthers behind every tree. Yeah. You know, there's not many Sasquatches out there, folks. There's millions and millions <laughs> of trail cameras. And unless your picture's really blurry and off to the side, and they you're not seeing many are. Sasquatches out there. Yeah, yeah. You're not seeing many of them. Yeah. Uh, so I think the edu- at this stage, the educational benefit far outweighs any negative aspect. There's probably some negatives, but any negative aspect, I think, is grossly outweighed by the positive benefits of education. Yeah, and and it's like you also said, my, my guest last week brought up the point as well, you can have as many pictures as you want. You could know the deer is literally standing under this particular tree right now. You've still got to go in there and get to him without alerting him, and that's that's the one thing like we were talking about. It's everything gets polarized to like, oh my gosh, you've got video of it now. You know, one particular person was saying, now I can just, I know where he's at. I can grab my camo and I'm running out there and I can just go kill him. There's no fair chase to it. I, I, it's funny because that seems like, yeah, you, you know, you could. This must really be a scary, dangerous thing. Until you, yeah, logically think about, okay, sh- show me how you're going to grab your camo, run out there. Somehow the deer's nose is out of play all of a sudden. The deer's, you know, eyes checking your movement as you're trying to sneak in there is out of play. But, yeah, I was just kind of curious on what your your uh, philosophy on that would have been. I think the simple thing is how many people live where their cell cameras are. I do, but not many people do. Yeah, Mark Drury doesn't. I mean, I, I know all these people, right? Yeah. They don't live where a cell camera is. So uh, you're not going to, there are a few people to have the opportunity to run out there <laughs> and, and get in front of that deer. Yeah. And then very few people are skilled enough to do it without alerting the deer. Because you may alert three deer on the way to that deer and they run ahead and alert that deer. That's a great point too. Yeah. So just to close out, because I'm curious because I'm, I am much more into turkey hunting. You got any turkey plans this year? Are you a big turkey hunter? Ooh, man, yeah, big time. So uh, South Carolina, Alabama, of course, here at the Proven Grounds. I got an invite a couple other states that I'm working on schedules right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I love turkey hunting. It's very interactive. Yep. Uh, turkey management's a whole nother, you know, podcast. Uh, we're <laughs> blessed to have a lot of turkeys here at the Proven Grounds, a lot. We have good habitat. And we kill a lot of predators. Yeah. And, and there's no magic recipe to turkeys, right? You need brooding and nesting habitat, and you can't have a predator every 10 acres. Yeah. That's one thing I've really liked about, I've noticed on growing deer on Instagram a lot lately has been your your predator control and showing people how to trap and showing people things like that. And it is, it's encouraging because I feel like this generation of hunters, you know, no matter what your age is, it seems like it's it's getting really popular to pay attention to predators again and to, to take care of that. Because for a long time, when I first got in a couple years ago, it seemed like nobody really did it a whole lot. And turkey populations are going down. What's going on? How can we fix it? Is it habitat? Is it this? And I kept hearing it's predator control. You have to you have to take out your coyotes, you got to take out your nest robbers. And then it's cool to see like people are really trying to make an effort for that right now. And it's very helpful for the content you put out for guys like me who I'm new. I don't know how to do that stuff. So I appreciate you guys putting that information out there. Well, thank you. And, and it's a, there's a lot of things with turkeys, neonic cover seed, whatnot, but predators is way up the list. Yeah. And I'll end with this. If it's okay, I'll just end with this. Uh, 
in Missouri, I'm, I'm good friends with MDC. I know a lot of people there. There's no strife there at all, at least on my side that I know of. But so, and my number's probably off, but about 20 years ago, they sold about 200,000 trapping licenses or sold 200,000 pelts or some metric like that. And that same metric last year was 6,000. Really? Well, how many how many more coons are out there? And that's true state. There's no money in trapping right now. There's no money in coons. There's they can't really even sell them. Yeah. So state after state after state have have data from the own state department showing these raccoon populations just skyrocketing. Well, they're tremendous nest predators, and not just for turkeys. For the 27 common species of songbirds that nest on the ground or a few feet off the ground, we get onto South Americans for destroying the Amazon. And we're not even controlling ground nesting predators. Right. You know, the birds winter down there, but they nest here. So, yeah, I'll get off my high horse on that. But <laughs> as as conservationists, I don't want to wipe out predators, but I want to find a balance where both predators and prey are doing well, not just predators are doing well. Right. Predators and prey are doing great. That's part of, you know, having dominion and taking care of creation. Right, right. Well, hey, we'll end with that. I think uh, you, when you go out on turkey-related stuff, that's always a good time. <laughs> so good luck here this year with that. Um, I obviously had a blast talking to you again. I thank you so much for coming on um, and and telling us some some answers that hopefully a lot of the guys out there. I think they're gonna. I think we got a lot of their questions answered. Um, and yeah, like I said, if I ever get to the point where I've got private land of my own, I kind of have a, a little bit of a heads up on that. So. Let's let everyone know where can they find you and Growing Deer TV online. Yeah, I think you just search on Growing Deer Your Finest, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, all the common stuff. Just search on Growing Deer Your Finest. Awesome. Yeah, and make sure you guys do that because Growing Deer is putting out a wide array of really good information, um, both not just for beginners, um, guys who have been hunting forever and ever. There's always something great out there that you can learn from them. So go check them out. Go follow them on Instagram right now. Also, make sure you guys are following us. You can find us at Antler Feather Co. We're on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. We're over on Twitter. That gets all the leftovers from Instagram. So if you guys found value in this show, if you feel like you learned something new, if you got something new in your hunting arsenal that you can take out into the woods with you, please like, subscribe, share, rate, and review. Because when you guys do that, that allows me to keep bringing great guests on like we had today. And guys, when that happens, that's ultimately going to make you more deadly in the woods. So we're going to catch up with you guys next week. This is the Antler and Feather Co. Podcast. You are listening to the Antler and Feather Co. Podcast. 